Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. As always, Brandon Ray is here with me. Hello. And today, we're really excited to have a veteran and also a VA employee named Tim Hornick. He is a post-9-11 Army captain who served from 2002 to 2011 uh, in Operation Iraqi Freedom, with a master's degree at the Palo Alto VA, and works uh, for the Western Blind Rehab Center. Uh, welcome to the Vets First podcast, Tim. It's really exciting to have you here. Well, thank you guys for uh, having me on board. I'm excited to be able to talk about my experiences, both uh, in the military as a veteran and on the flip side in the VA. I think this is the first question I ask everybody is where you grew up and and, and how did you get involved with the military? And um, I, I think that's an important thing for us to understand and, and kind of go from there. Oh, very much so, because knowing our backgrounds and exactly why we joined our all-volunteer force or those of us who joined after uh, 77, 78 timeframe, it's very uh, interesting to see all of our different experiences. So I grew up uh, over on the uh, south side, south suburbs of Chicago. And originally joined the military in a very uh, interesting manner where I was applying for colleges and I was trying to go through the ROTC route because basically I wanted to have college paid for. So nothing of your standard, um, you know, doing it for the patriotic cause. It was, you know, the mid 90s. We were going through the uh, reduction of force at that point in the military, and we had all those great advertisements of, hey, uh, let the uh, Army pay the way for college for you. So that was my kind of more selfish motivations of joining the military, uh, initially with a uh, four-year scholarship for ROTC for nursing, which ended up not exactly having that pan through because I'm not a nurse. Uh, <laughs> it was a great experience. Well, isn't that what most college kids do anyway is that they, they go in thinking they're going to do one thing and come out doing a di- completely different thing exactly and that's awesome and that's a good summary of you know military experiences you think you're going to go in do one thing and you find yourself all over the board based on different experiences changing your perspective your perspectives of life your goals and it's just it's great just watching how it just changes over time and it's just i just love transitions so and so that's how- what the military is how old were you when you joined? Uh, you know, signed the ROTC scholarship when I was 18. And then, uh, you know, four years later, when I was done with college. That's when I actually uh, took my uh, commissioning oath. So, you know, 22 years old. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so yeah. the ROTC is a little different because you come out as a, as a officer, right? Uh, yes. You're not, en- you're not enlisted, correct? Is that correct? Correct. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. So we're still trying to learn yeah, no, it's, how it's, the military works a little bit. But <laughs> so when you come out of ROTC, you're 22, um, you're probably a young go-getter, and we're in a we're in a war in Iraq. What 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 mm-hmm. happened then? Uh, I went the uh, complete opposite direction. Uh, instead of having heading over to the uh, desert, uh, my wife uh, also was in ROTC with me, and uh, she commissioned uh, at the same time as I. And she got stationed over in uh, Korea in 2002 
And so, you know, I was working with a branch to say, hey, how can I get uh, within the same locality as my wife? And so uh, she, her orders uh, sent her over to um, K-16, which is a uh, uh, Air Force Base uh, for the Koreans uh, south of Seoul. And they're like, hey, yeah, we can get you, uh, you know, pretty close to her. So they put me up at uh, Camp Casey in Korea, which is on the other side of Seoul. And like anyone else that's used to uh, driving around a major city, yes, the military did get us in the same locale, if you look on the global status. But uh, <laughs> otherwise, we were about, you know, four or five hours away from each other mm -hmm. and at least on the same continent for the first uh year and a half of our military careers um yeah go ahead Brandon. i was just gonna say it's a little victories that count right <laughs> yeah so i'm assuming you were in a combat situation uh, yes. at some point and so you didn't stay in korea the whole time um no what no. can you tell us a little bit about that how you ended up uh where you're at now yeah, so, and, and sort of fun part is with the military. Um, and we see this a lot with dual service um, military couples is you're working together and working with the military to find locations that can uh, fit both of your MOSs. So I was air defense and she was quartermaster. And so this brings us to our next location, which was in 2004, where we both agreed to go to uh Fort Hood. Uh, at that point in time, First Cav was already deployed to Iraq, and her unit was beginning to get ready to deploy uh, in support uh, operations around um, December timeframe. And so we arrived there in September of that year. I deployed right away to Iraq, and uh, she was getting her unit ready to deploy uh, about four months later. And so I joined uh, with a uh, four or five uh, ADA who was already in the middle of doing uh, patrol patrolling operations along Rod Irish, uh, which is that major thoroughfare that goes through Iraq that is all of our military uh, supply convoy lines. Uh, in, in particular, we were uh, patrolling the part of the uh, Rod Irish uh, there between the uh, Baghdad International Airport, the green zone, and a little bit uh, beyond that. Uh, which in that point was probably one of the most dangerous roads in the world is one of the ways that the news usually framed it, where you usually had something going off um, uh, rather frequently uh, going on. So uh, that's kind of just how I got into, uh, into uh, Iraq, into the Baghdad area, and into the situation that ultimately caused me to uh, lose my sight, which occurred on, of all days, uh, November 11, 2004, uh, where we were supporting the uh, Iraqi National Guard with um, providing them with uh, security as they were going into a uh, Iraqi mosque. And at which point we did have a sniper in the area that we were unable to find. And let's just say that hey, I am still here to, the, to stay, which I can't be more than happy about because it could have gone a whole lot worse uh, getting shot where uh, the sniper's round entered through the um, left temple, uh, severed the uh, left optical nerve and exited out the right eye, causing uh, a ruptured globe. Hmm. Man, yeah, that's, that's pretty intense. First, Tim, can I ask you a few yeah. questions about it? Oh, hell yeah. Are you comfortable? Okay, you're comfortable talking about it. That's fine. 
Yeah. Um, oh, I have it as part of a presentation that I also give to uh, ophthalmologists residents. Oh, very cool. So would we be able to get a few of those slides to put with the blog at all? Sure. Um, Which ones do you want? Uh, I don't. I haven't seen your. I haven't seen your stuff yet. So yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Anything you're willing to share? Yeah. Um, the oh, more yeah. information we can get out there, I think the better. So yeah. Well, I, I have surgical photos. It's the other reason why I was asking that. Other than that, I do got some photos that um, I was able to keep um, from my uh, experiences there because I, I didn't get my camera back <laughs> when I came back. That got confiscated somewhere. But nice. yeah, I do oh. got some photos. Your did 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 the helmet? You were wearing a helmet, I assume. Um, did it did it miss your helmet? Helmet ends bullet here. Oh, oh. wow. Okay. <laughs> Jeez, you're talking fractions of an inch, right? And and oh. so you're you know you're Tim. That's wild. You survived. Yeah, it is wild. You survived. Also, did you? Do you remember? Do you remember getting hit? Do you? Oh yeah, no, I did not lose consciousness at you all. Did not because... lose consciousness. Oh yeah. my gosh. Okay. Well, yep. you know, um, <laughs> I can't believe you didn't lose consciousness. Actually, That's... well, it's um, just so if it missed the entire brain, you didn't have any severe swelling. I mean, just think of the tissues that it passed through. There's not a whole lot there, other than the overall uh, blunt force. Uh, of the impact itself but other than then there's no mission critical um areas because yeah passed in front of the uh passed in front of um you know the hindbrain and everything and below the, the frontal lobe and everything so other than that i mean that's just all soft tissue yeah so did you you know you immediately lose eyesight obviously um can you kind of explain a little bit what it was like to go from hundred percent visual to uh no vision uh and yeah, it's less than a day in a fraction of a second really so i also have a caveat on that is i also regained eyesight too whoa because th that was a piece on why i only said it uh it ruptured the globe um, it got stitched back together wow. in theater and so in the theater yeah wow that's really impressive yeah you know the the that's one thing that it's been <laughs> really interesting to me as I talk to more people in, in the field of medicine and, and war, war trauma is that these forward operating surgical centers are really driving forward or pushing how surgery is done on trauma. And it's, it's really impressive that these forward operating, uh, you know, surgical theaters are, are able to do what they do with patients like you. It's, it's really impressive and very um, amazing that our, that we're start that we not starting to do it that we've been doing it for a long time. Uh, yeah. It really has increased the survival rate of of lots of people. Um, yeah. So yeah, and I'll, and I'll walk through that entire experience. Um, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah please. Go ahead. Okay. I, I don't know if you want to do a a, a better lead in on that one or just uh, want me to take up. I mean, you've heard our podcast. No, you can. <laughs> you know, we listen, Tim. We're still trying to. People tell us stuff like what you just told us. And I'm sitting here as a guy <laughs> who has a PhD, who went to college and was drinking beer at the time you got shot, you know? And like, I think about that and I try to process it myself and understand yeah. what it, it's hard for me to process too, that, <laughs> that that happened to you. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh yeah. 
you're giggling, but it's it's true. Like I, I am still struck every day when we do interviews mm-hmm. like this yeah. of the perseverance and the fact that you can sit here and laugh about it, Tim. Like that's that's amazing to me. And and so that part is one of the more interesting parts I think of any of these types of stories, including mine, is how do we get from point of injury to where we can laugh about that? Because that's where we start see, seeing the um, the true spirit of the individual come out. And as much as we talk about resilience as being a major healing factor, uh, a good buddy of mine, Dr. Atkanda, I like what he calls it better, which is uh, transilience, which is the uh, process in which you don't just rebound, but you uh, transcend where you were before to create a new you, to really have that sense of changing all of your outlooks on life, your sense of self, your identities, your spirituality, as just this broader, hey, just don't get to where you were, just like anything else that's been uh, injured. It is amazing to see what could happen when you when it's reforged entirely and transcend what it was uh, previously. And that's why we're able to laugh about it as we've reached that point. We have had that sense of overcoming, not just disabilities and conditions, more importantly, uh, overcoming the uh, internal talk that we go through and really develop a much stronger sense, more well-rounded sense, even though we're asking for assistance or you know, we may see them a little bit off, it's absolutely amazing. Um, just with the folks I work with, even that have gone through the same process and people that I know, it's amazing just talking with them, seeing, yeah, this is, this is what they used to be, but they're much happier now than they ever were. Uh, even though they missed parts of their previous life, they missed being able to do things. Mm-hmm. There's a deeper sense of happiness that it, I know I'm not, doing it justice with explaining it right right now but it's it's there it's and that's why and i think a good way of me uh ending this part of my rant is uh when people say thanks for your service i say no problem it was enjoyable to do it and even more uh enjoyable nowadays yeah uh, just because i don't regret it i don't regret anything that i did i don't regret the injury because it transformed me to who i am today which is being able to share and talk about it, more importantly, doing what I do to help others in the same situation. That if I didn't have it, I would, I would not have these experiences to be able to share or have some of the tools that I have learned to help others overcome similar states of adversity. Yeah, of course. I, I think uh, an important thing you just said is that we shouldn't let one incident define our lives, right? And, yeah. and that's kind of what you're getting at. And that's a, that's a subject we talked about last season mm-hmm. quite a bit with um, yeah. Ann Sadler and, and, and Dr. Turvey, um, you know, is this perseverance and this sort of belonging and, and service, nature of service that, that I think veterans carry on beyond their actual time in the military. And it's really cool to me. I think it's really neat. I really like that term, transilience. I'm going to be Yeah, transilience that. is great. That's a great term. So, so getting back to your, you had just got shot. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about what that was like? I guess I don't know. Like, yeah, I don't even know where to go from here, Tim. Let's be honest. Oh yeah, no problem. 
yeah, this, this is the easy part. <laughs> Cause yeah. Um, Cause this is just a pure, simple uh, uh, situation on what happened. So first off, uh, what is it like to get shot over there in the uh, temple? Well, just imagine getting punched in the side of the head. It's pretty much the same thing. I mean, it's hurt. Snake going's not that one bit. It definitely makes you go and rethink, wow, ouch, um, what's going on? You do lose a good sense on, you know, just everything that is going in and around you. And so with me, yeah, uh, I did go blind uh, right away. And at that point, uh, I'm sitting there, I went to, uh, went to, uh, uh, this is going to sound bad, but I was in a Bradley. So I went to the bottom of the turret. My head was sticking out of the Bradley, trying to find the sniper and didn't have any success trying to find him any more than my gunner did. So uh. yes, I was in a very, very nice and heavily armored vehicle and get shot in the head because my head was not inside the vehicle. Yeah, Trust me, it's, it's a good punchline that... I, <laughs> We I do get to have fun with so yeah fair um yeah but I also looked at it as you know the uh, lieutenant in the unit is the weakest link and uh, yeah we're we're the most expendable it's really our soldiers uh, that really are the ones that do all the real work so I looked at my loss being eh yeah I'm replaceable easily um, my actual soldiers they're not replaceable at all they're experienced and everything are really the ones that gets us through everything and gets me through uh, the next uh, probably about 30 minutes, um, which is the length of time that it takes for my, uh, my guys to get back up in the Bradley uh, and us to roll over to the, uh, to the uh, hospital there in the uh, green zone, which did have that wonderful HBO series called, that uh, was it, Baghdad ER? So, um, uh, yeah, so that entire experience is, yeah, um, sitting there in the bottom of the turret, I hear my gunner come over to radio because I still have the headset on, uh, being able to communicate saying that um, I was down and I'm sitting there feeling the side of my head because it's like, hey, yeah, no, I know there's a hole right here inside of my head um, and just doing a self-assessment just to make sure that it's like, yeah, I'm all here still uh, type thing. And that's when... Um, my gunner uh, was able to get the uh, rest of our um, our squad back up into Bradley. Uh, and his name was uh, Sergeant Nikolai, fantastic guy. He went through this experience uh, too, too many times because I was the second lieutenant that they had um, in that position. And both of us went down. And that's um, then I had um, uh, Sergeant Moore, uh, who is my um, one of my section sergeants, uh, pulled me out of the turret, get in the back, and and uh, and a couple others back there. I don't know who was doing what at that point in time. To me, uh, started to administer first aid, and I'm sitting there trying to figure out. It's like, why are they wrapping my uh, my right eye with gauze and everything? The hole is on the side of my head, on the left side, not on the right side. Because um, I just didn't realize. Because no, I didn't try poking my missing. Uh, hole on my right side yet I just knew that there was a hole on the left side and I didn't realize any of that because you know you're still in a little bit of a state of shock because I, I didn't were you not feeling pain uh so there's not a whole lot of pain receptors in in that area which is the other fun part to think of 
that, uh, yeah, there, there's no major pain nerve endings. Your eye really doesn't have much. You have some over there on the side of the head. There was no uh, major uh, cranial swelling or anything like that from the bullet's trajectory because of, well, there's a lot of dead space there behind, behind the eyes for um, any type of major swelling to occur. So it's, yeah, no, no, not really. Hmm. Not right. really. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just, yeah, just imagining that that part of the head and just all the stuff that's there and well hey i have a lot more hot air in my head than i commonly <laughs> thought i did so um that hot air helped cushion everything back there so yeah um but yeah no so we roll over i'm sitting there uh doing all the praying because it's like oh crap what what is going on with me i get over to uh uh hospital over there they pop me up on the gurney one of my uh, counterparts uh, who took one of uh, his guys there about an hour and a half before um, I got there because of a uh, similar situation with one of his dismounts getting shot. He meets me over there just to check up on me so he could report back to our commander and everything. And uh, I'm standing there getting wheeled. The uh, nurse and the uh, doc are there rolling me in. I was like, hey, am I dying? Because uh, I'm feeling cold is what I'm actually asking them. And they're like, no, we just hit you with, uh, you know, they just started my IV line for uh, sedating me. And that's like, oh, gotcha. That's what that is. Okay. Just want to make sure. And they also told me at that point that I was fully naked because they uh, stripped you down that quick. And it's like, hey, now I know why I'm cold. And hey, good night. See you in the morning. So yeah. woke up the next day. I uh, was able to call my wife. Uh, uh, we were able to... Uh, uh, get her to understand that hey i was alive um i was going to have a pretty good birthday because my birthday is november 12th uh, and i was going to be coming home shortly because at that point the only thing that she heard and you know y'all can tell me uh, your thoughts is hey your husband was shot in the head he's coming home yeah That's all she knew phrasing yeah phrasing phrasing so yeah yep 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 so uh the fact that it was only being told that over the phone and not the traditional way is kind of the thing that told her, hey, he's okay, but hey, there's something missing here. So the yeah. fact that she was able to hear me the next day in a slightly uh, sedated form talking over some um, VIP's personal cell phone there um, was absolutely fantastic. So yeah, I was able to get some good care uh, you know, went through launch stool uh, for a quick, uh, quick second um, where I had a couple of friends that I went to school with that were nurses over there and went over to Walter Reed where I had some more friends that I went to school with that were nurses over there able to take good care of us um, and very thankful for the help that they were able to provide. And uh, kind of one of the hard parts uh, with ocular traumas, especially when they're just ocular traumas in the military, is that there's not a whole lot of um, places to stick us. You know, Walter Reed, you know, you have what the burn center there, you got the MP center, you got the spinal cord. There's not really a good section. We got a whole lot of folks that are visually impaired with uh, just injuries with ocular trauma. Yeah. And, you know, this is one of those commonalities that hasn't changed too much that I think when he spoke with uh, Tom Tempuri about that, he was able to mention several times that 
where do we have these ocular trauma centers of excellence type situations? And at that point, 2004, there really weren't a whole lot. And so I get there, I get stuck up uh, over on the um, OBGYN floor because all the other units are full and I'm kind of, you know, blind view that, well, they just need a place to stick me for the uh, four days that I was there before I get sent over to uh, Wolford Hall. Uh, over there at Laughlin Air Force Base, because that's closer to us there at uh, Fort Hood. And not to mention, they have a pretty good uh, ocular uh, uh, center that does all the Air Force trainings. And so I had some, you know, pretty good care uh, in that process. But yeah, just no really good center points like we do see with other injuries for where to provide our treatments. So is that, do you and, think that? Do you know if that has changed since the time you were injured? You were injured in 2004. Uh, so cool thing that uh, recently released by the uh, Blind Veterans Association is that, you know, the military is finally standing up the Ocular uh, Centers of Excellence with the uh, first ones coming online here in the near future. That was part of the, uh, um, not this past year's NDAA, but uh, one of the recent ones. And so hopefully by being able to get these types of centers of excellence up and going and fully stabilized and moving forwards, you know, we can have, I want to, it's not better treatment. Treatment's been fantastic, yeah. but I think more comprehensive treatments at singular entities is going to be tremendous because one of the things that I was missing in this entire part is there's not a whole lot of us blind folks um, wandering around. And so trying to find peers has always been difficult because, well, it's hard just to find people when you're blind, um, yeah. much less trying to find people with similar injuries because, you know, we're all cast to the winds to wherever can provide the services. Um, so there's not a whole lot, not a whole lot of uh, places where we can join together like we do see with some of the other disabilities who do have the larger center of excellence and treatment centers that, hey, here's the uh, burn center. And, you know, they have constantly folks coming in and out here in Palo Alto. We got our polytrauma center that's fantastic with being able to treat a wide variety of uh, polytrauma injuries um, and being able to work with folks. And while they're in these centers, you know, they're able to meet their peers and, more importantly, their caregivers, spouses, family are able to meet caregivers, spouses, and families going through similar things. So you're able to get a whole lot of sharing going on and a lot of those extra therapeutics that are instrumental to all of the heavy lifting that the doctors are doing with trying to stitch us or put us back together, mm -hmm. which is supporting the family, supporting the mental health, supporting that next phase in life. And so I'm hoping to see that change here in the future. Interesting. Yeah, I, that's, that's great. That's a mm -hmm. good. So can you explain to me a little bit what it was like that transition from, you know, 100% sight to, to nothing, um, it, and came back and started to, to do rehabilitation. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Yeah. So it's, uh, um, you know, using stages of loss, uh, you spend a whole lot of time either, or in my case, uh, going through depression, going through denial. Um, first year, um, yeah, about the first year, I just uh, put my brain in autopilot, uh, which is, you know, just whatever uh, someone told me related to my care. I just said, yep, Roger, moving forward, uh, doing it as best I could. 
uh, did blind rehab uh, in Waco where I learned uh, some of my initial skill sets, but I wasn't quite ready for blind rehab uh, yet. Um, and I wouldn't be for several years later. Um, other fun part of my story is that I did remain on active duty. Uh, this was 2004, I didn't get out to 2011. So I had seven years where I stayed in the military. Um, I went back to my units um, when they redeployed where you know, I was able to get some useful vision as well as training on adaptive uh, uh, technology from Waco Blind Rehab Center, able to remain fully engaged with work. Um, but once again, I was in autopilot mode doing things I already knew. I was still in the identity of what I previously had as being a um, uh, being who I wanted to be as an officer in the military, trying to move forward. Uh, so once again, um, the site part was probably the easiest thing to figure out and get over because even though my site was a roller coaster of improving, going down to nothing, improving, going down to nothing, because there's only so much you can do with a stitch back, uh, stitch up globe, as well as an eye that's missing a uh, lens, uh, natural cornea, it's iris, and it's retina just being held together by uh, sheer uh, force of will. Um, that, um, you know, that was probably the easier part for me to deal with more than me trying to cope with who I wanted to be. And that would be probably three years, three years, three and a half, four years after my injury. It was probably one of the more darkest points in my life because once again, dealing with sight loss and the ups and downs of sight loss uh, with being able to you now see and what my brain is able to do is one thing, being able to cope with that. Um, yeah, yeah, going on autopilot's not a good thing. Anytime someone talked to me, I gave them the, the response like, yeah, doing absolutely fantastic. Social workers that did the follow-up stuff for those of us that were injured, um, they all looked at me and it's like, you know, fantastic story. You're able to stay in the military. You're still doing a lot of good things. I'm sitting here thinking, oh yeah, no, I'm going to tell you everything that you want to hear because I'm not ready to deal with the internal piece yet. Um, well, Tim, you're talking, anyone... about, you're talking about how, uh, um, blind rehab where you're getting ready for that. How did you, how did you come to that point? Like, what was the thought process? How did you get to the point that like, I'm, I'm ready to, to really do that. And so this comes with a, a fun transition point in my life. So the first time, you know, I just got sent there because yeah, you need to send someone like me there as fast as possible to help them get up on their legs and moving forwards and that's why i did it i knew I, I knew what i needed to take from blind rehab i just wasn't ready to deal with blind rehab mm -hmm. uh the second time when i went there was 2010 when i went up to heinz and that point i just finished with my uh, with my master's in social work um i was getting ready to come back over from university uh life because the army sent me there for uh for social work and I was getting ready to go back to um, uh, what at that point was the Wounded Warrior uh, Education Initiative, which was a um, Army Wounded Warrior program, not project, but you know the actual AW2 ran by the U.S. Army because I was still active at that time. And at that point, I was like, okay, I actually need to know how to be a blind guy. Finally, and I was finally able to accept. I was able to use the cane and have no problem with it. 
I was able to have all my speech synthesizers and text speech stuff talking and in, uh, in the office without having any care if anyone heard it. Because before you're trying to conceal as much as possible, I tried to be a, a sighted blind guy. It didn't work out too well. I was able to do what I need to do, but after going through the social work program, after being able to spend a quick minute not trying to be me, but trying to learn who I was, that's when I was so like, okay. The, what you're talking about a little bit is like acceptance of what yes. had occurred and what your life will be like, right? That that you yes. really, you mentally had to come to an acceptance point before you were able to, to really move forward, it seems. Yes. It, yes. And that's the hard part. It's we all hit it at different points in times. It's a, I don't, it's not a vicious cycle. It's kind of a never ending cycle where we go back and forth over the course of our lives when we're ready, we're not ready, we're ready, we're not ready. And so I just need to find when I was ready. And that mm -hmm. was it. I was finally ready to, uh, to accept it and move forward. Would you which, say that you were, because you said you were trying to hide hide it as much as possible were you embarrassed by it was it oh yeah because yeah yeah well one of the common ways anyone that's injured and can't do a job is considered a uh, a broke soldier um mm. and that has a whole lot of negative connotations and and that's where it's like i'm trying to go and show the face of me that uh is not broke that's a completely normal part but yet i have this negative self-talk running both uh, that which is what I personally believe the military was, or at least the military culture was telling me, uh, versus what the military culture was actually trying to tell me, two different things. So I believed I was broke, therefore I'm useless unless I'm able to do things, whereas the actual military culture that I was around that I was not able to see was actually trying to support me. I, and I was not ready to see how they, they were trying to support me. They didn't care that I couldn't see as much as they cared on what I was able to do for everyone. Interesting. And so that's where we got difference between what we think the culture is and what the culture is within the military. And what I thought it was was not what it was. So Tim, so after this acceptance and going through blind rehab, uh, how long was it until you started working with the VA? So there's another nice, lovely, long time span. Um, and to quickly summarize, I got out in December 2011 because my wife and I felt that the military was not the right place for us anymore. Mm -hmm. um, I did have a couple of awesome potentials. I had carry-on orders uh, that would take me to uh some fantastic experiences. I actually made the uh, selection board to uh, be promoted to major if I would have stayed on for another couple of months. Oh, wow. And so I did have my military career moving forward at the time when my wife and I were made the decision to get out, which was because we had a young daughter. Uh, my wife was, my wife and I both agreed that, you know, we were just a wee bit overwhelmed with what was going to be coming up with the amount of moves. Uh, especially with trying to do multiple moves in a very short period of time with a young family, with me still coping and trying to become who I needed to be. And so that's when I got out, 2011, uh, started to go back to school, uh, went through a, a, a PhD program uh, over at the University of Kansas uh, 
occupational therapy program called Therapeutic Sciences. I didn't finish it, um, but got a lot of good lessons. So uh, during that entire uh, process, I was looking for opportunities to become a uh, social worker within the VA. Um, nothing really materialized until um, 2020 when uh, actually late 2019, when a buddy that I was working with over at the VA named Jared uh, said, hey, uh, there's going to be a position for a patient advocate popping up here in the near future. Can you please apply for it? Because um, him and I were working on a bunch of different things together. He was the uh, patient advocate over at the Eastern Kansas VA um, at that point in time. And I uh, just wanted to see if uh, I'd be interested in trying to apply for it. I did apply for it. And that's how I got my first foothold in the door was uh, as a patient advocate there in Eastern Kansas uh, in January 2020. Whole lot of things have changed since then, yeah. uh, which you guys, I think, covered a few times. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's yes. been a very interesting experience. Uh, and uh, another opportunity came out around the same, about a year later um, after um, I was there as a patient advocate where physicians came up to be uh, the admissions coordinator here at the Western Blind Rehab Center. And it's like, I talked to my wife. I was like, hey, do you want to try California if I'm able to get it? She was like, well, we, we could test it. And both of us thought there was no chance that I was going to get it. And lo and behold, uh, yeah, I was selected for the position, super happy because I always wanted to start to be able to give back to blind rehab in one way or another um, as a person that had received a lot of tremendous benefits uh, from blind rehab. A lot of awesome people have come along and helped me through blind rehab services. Uh, like when I was at Heinz, the uh, chief there, Jerry Shutter, was fantastic. Um and uh, Denise uh, Van Kalabering, um and several others did a fantastic job with helping me, uh, mentor me, uh, mature me, because yeah, that's always needed um, to where I was. And I just oh, wanted I, to I feel still, I still back. need to do it all the time, Tim. Yeah, we all do, but I'm a 37 year old <laughs> child. It's fine. <laughs> it, My we're always going to be there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah no so yeah I, i've had some fantastic mentors along the way um and so i was happy to find out, finally be able to give back to them uh, by coming on board and it's one of the things i i hope to be able to continue going forward is finding some way to uh either work within blind rehab services or partnering with blind rehab services to continue to impact the lives of veterans with visual impairments uh, Very nice. through yeah. this process. And how do you, you know, how do you think the VA's handled blind rehabilitation? You know, I think from my very limited, very, very, very limited experience, I think they tend to do a good job. These VIST coordinators and services yeah. they provide are actually pretty good in my opinion, but I could be totally off on that. No, no. So it's, it's the entire lifelong continuum of care that blind rehab uh, is able to provide that actually is one of, I think is one of the most impactful uh, services that the VA has to offer. It would be fantastic if uh, other service lines were able to develop the same type of uh, programs, uh, especially rehabilitative services within the VA that blind rehab has come to become because truly there is no other services like it in the world. Well, we could go and talk about blind veterans of the UK. Uh, 
which is you know another fun conversation to have. But we're actually going to be really... talking to Renata. Yep. Cool. Go no. So, um, no, no, yeah, we talked to her this week, right? Eighteenth uh, coming up. Eighteenth, a couple weeks. Yeah. No, there's yeah, there, there's really no other services like this, and especially for visual impairments here um, in the U.S. because uh, no one else is able to provide these types of full wraparound services from regular case management, outpatient uh, rehab, um, in-home visits to inpatient rehab, and even, you know, day-type rehabs for visual impairments here in this country. We have a lot of nonprofits that yeah. are providing blind rehab, but that's more of a fragmentary system. We have state services for the blind, which once again is also a fragmentary system that relies heavily around folk rehab and other types of entities to provide the assistance that's needed. Uh, VA blind rehab is truly the only one that does everything from asset case management, uh, uh, basic rehab, advanced rehab, complex care with dealing with uh, multiple conditions um, and injuries and traumas. Um, here at Palo Alto, we're the only ones that have a uh, comprehensive neurological vision rehab program within the blind rehab services that's dealing with a whole lot of uh, TBI-related uh, visual impairments due to a uh, multitude of situations, not just uh, trauma from wartime, but strokes and other types of acquired uh, TBIs or uh, and uh, similar types of visual impairments caused by a brain injury. Um, uh, yeah, to name name me any any other service that you guys can think of, or any of your listeners that can think of that provides that type of wraparound services. And yeah, we'll come up short uh, very quickly because it just doesn't. So yeah, the VA blind rehab service is fantastic. Um, yeah, and I, you know, I think I think uh, nonprofits like the VBA pushing you know, nonprofits for veterans do a lot to push uh, care yeah. for veterans. And I think that's been a really uh, eye-opening thing to me mm -hmm. is that, is that the, when you want something done in government, you have to, you have to, you know, lobby for it. And I think that yeah. non or, or, or nonprofits have done a really good job of that in particular, uh, improving care for veterans and and especially uh, blinded veterans in this case. Uh, they, it's, it's really interesting. They really have. Um, and without uh, the Blind Veteran Association, because they've been the leaders in making sure that blind rehab services is able to be around to this day, uh, they've been the ones that's been pushing for the expansions because when blind rehab services initially started, and um, um, you can get this from uh, a wonderful uh, Article, series of articles that Dr. Greg Bedrich wrote uh, along with Tom and a few others in that collective. Um, yeah, I mean, you go back to uh, 1940s when blind rehab started to be developed. I mean, that was just all uh, inpatient uh, rehab centers. It wasn't until the uh, 60s and 70s with the Blind Veterans Association's uh, continuous efforts uh, that we got the visual impairment services team coordinators to provide the case management. And then again, in the uh, 80s, when we got the, uh, the uh, visual impairment centers to optimize remaining sites and the visual impairment uh, services, outpatient rehab centers throughout the country, that's able to provide all of this type of blind rehab, whether it's inpatient, uh, one-day settings, um, in-home care, that, you know, we would not have this without 
without, yeah, folks like the Blind and Veterans Association. And they're continuing to make sure that, uh, you know, we don't lose any of our blind rehab centers because, you know, what's going on right now in the VA, other than that wonderful report that's talking about realignment and how that happens uh, within the VA. And it's like, you know, we continue to need our, our voices being captured. And so that's just, that's the one piece. The other piece is blind rehab services are a good job with providing the rehab care, mm-hmm. but we need as individuals, as going back to that uh, notion of transiliency and what I was saying about not also being, or not being around other individuals with visual impairments for, you know, the majority of my recovery period, um, it wasn't. It wasn't until engaging with Blind Veterans Association that I started to meet other uh, veterans with visual impairments and working with them, going out, doing fun things like uh, uh, going going to their uh, convention, doing kayaking, going hiking. Um, you know, doing some of these fun rec therapy type items. Um, went outside the VA until you know, getting to know the Blind Veterans Association going uh, more, uh, developing some of my own uh, support groups for a couple minutes uh, there uh, when I was going through school, uh, just bringing people together to help out with learning things like technology and just general life. Um, All that is thanks to, as I like Blind Veterans Association to bring us together because otherwise, you know, there's blinded veterans, all over the place. I ain't going to deny that one bit. It's just we're onesies, twosies here and there, especially, uh, you know, most of this, uh, most of my story takes place in Kansas um, when I got out of the military. And yeah, there's a whole lot of space, just like y'all have up there in Iowa City. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a lot of space up there between people. Yeah, And so you don't, you don't meet others unless it's large national organizations working to bring us together from throughout the country because that's where we need uh that that's where we have the best method of being able to pull us all together is a large uh large entity that is trying to help each of us based on all of us being the ones helping so going back to the entire you know visually impaired veterans helping other veterans with visual impairments i mean that's truly the key stone piece in all of this is can we help each other and that yeah tim i've it. got a couple more follow-up questions and then yep. one of them is the one i like to ask everybody uh it's, it's the what what do you do for fun man what what does tim do for fun uh what i do for fun is spend a lot of time on bikes so cool um Hi. For some odd reason, there's a couple of races uh, over there in Kansas, because just like y'all have up there in Iowa, it's a bunch of gravel roads that a lot of people don't use enough. Uh-huh. I love gravel cycling races. So um, I think a lot, of, a lot of my buddies were getting me into it. So over the last six years, seven years, I've uh, been spending a lot of time riding bikes, long distances on gravel. I've done the uh, former... Uh, DK now called Unbound, uh, 200 mile gravel uh, race here um, many times. Next one coming up on June 4th, where hope to have my third finish um, over there in their uh, tandem category. I'm glad they're also able to get their Paralympic category established. So that um, you know, yeah, yeah, that's awesome. It's gonna be that's cool, fantastic. Um, and then one last question. 
because you just yeah. blew my mind. Um, you ride with another rider. Did you say tandem? Yeah. Okay. Yes. 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 The, well, there there is an uh, awesome person. Uh, Sean Cheshire is a uh, totally blind uh, uh, army paramedic um, that did just finish uh, going across the country uh, on a single by using uh, headsets and, uh, hu and uh, human guides so that we're riding with her across the country and she is next getting uh, set up to do the uh, Continental Divide, which is the uh, wonderful ride that takes you from Canada down to Mexico on the Continental Divide Trail. Wow, that's really cool. Um, your story has been really cool, man. I, uh, great interview and mm -hmm. um, yeah. Well, hey, I just wanna really thank you again. Bye, Tim. Uh, this concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.